Hello and welcome to another episode of the Healthwatch Essex Hidden Voices podcast. I'm your host Dan Potts and I'm the Engagement Manager at Healthwatch Essex and we wanted to create a podcast as a place where we can discuss and share stories of those living with conditions or in circumstances that aren't commonly heard. I'm delighted to welcome two guests today to speak about what matters to veterans. First of all, I'm joined by Colin Branch of Help for Heroes. Colin, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Absolute pleasure to have you. Also joining us is Paul Findlay, formerly of Blesma. How are you, Paul? I'm very well, thanks, Dan. Good stuff. Thank you both for joining us, guys. Um, first of all, I want to find out a little bit about you uh, in relation to your background. So, Colin, we'll start with you. Just a little bit about your background in the military, please, mate. Yeah, so I, I joined at the tender age of 16. I was a junior leader um, back in 1991. I spent 14 years in the military, served on various different operational tours, uh, such as a few tours in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Croatia, and my last tour were, was in Afghanistan. Um, I, got, I injured my knees um, while I was completing what's called a, a, an advanced contact, and I was essentially a, a crush injury. But back then in the infantry, if you had an injury, you didn't have a, a career as such. So I hid my injury by strapping my knees every single day with boxes tape and uh, tuber grip and self-prescribing with paracetamol morphine tablets if I could get a hold of them, morphine pens, so I could do my promotional courses. And on my last tour in Afghanistan, I'd done a bit of a jump and it didn't feel right. Um, and when I got back back into the UK, I went and saw my medical officer and said, something's not quite right. And I said, well, you just picked up your sergeant. You know what this means. If you, if you get downgraded, you won't pick it up. You won't be wearing the rank. And I my combat trousers down and took all the tape off and my tuber grips and my kneecaps rolled inwards. So I said, well, yeah, I said, how long have you been like that? And I coughed and said, eight years I've been doing this for. And so well, you need realignment surgery really, really quickly. So I, I went and had surgery and I ended up with a fixed flexion deformity on my right leg where my leg wouldn't straight out, straighten out properly. And it also bent into my left knee. So it looked a little bit like a bit of a curly whirly chocolate bar twisted and had about three or four different surgeries to try and rectify that and three or four admissions into Headley Court and then they decided I was going to be mentally discharged my career was completely over and lose my leg above the knee so that's what's happened. Colin thanks for sharing that um, you've ruined my favourite chocolate bar as a curly whirly so thanks very much for that um, but uh, what I wanted to talk a bit about was um, kind of how that left you feeling obviously having to leave the military which of course wasn't planned. Yeah, so the, back, the medical discharge process now is very, very different to how my experience was. Um, when I come back from my, my medical discharge board, that was on the 19th of July. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget that day. One, it's my brother's birthday, so I couldn't forget. Two, it was my career-ending day. And I got back and saw my officer commander, my OC, that I grew up with in the military. So he was my sergeant major when I first joined my battalion. Um, and then he, he made his way through the ranks to, to Major, gave him this bit of paper and he said, Twiggy, thanks very much for the last 14 years of service. You've got four hours to get out of camp because of health and safety. Get your bunk emptied out and proceed straight away on sick leave and come back in 30 days time and you'll be handing your ID card. And that was it for me. So I was really fortunate that I had already had brought my own home back in back in Suffolk at that point. Um, but I didn't know what was, so the sense of loss was was huge really I didn't know what I was going to do for a job uh, I'm losing my leg so I'm not going to be out of work anyway how can I provide for my family I've got two kids what's going to happen with them you know how do I pay my mortgage so it's a it's a huge sense of, of loss going through that 
for the first 30 days and then afterwards you, you kind of make plans on how how you're going to live out the rest of your life and I was just being approved as a foster care at that point so I think that was in the September October time we had our first foster child given to us so we started going through that and then I started volunteering with the school for behavior and they offered me a job they created a job offered me a job as head of behavior within a high school so I kind of fell into places of employment and activities to do to fill my time but the 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 enormous amount of feeling of of loss. But I had a, a big career, and you know, I come top of it in training when I was in my basic training, and they said that you're going to have a really good fruitful career. And I'd done all my promotional courses, I was qualified up to warrant officer, and that was just it was like pulling a rug. But ultimately, that was my it was my fault because I hid my injuries so bad for such a long time. Only a few people knew, and that was a it's like the world's best secret really in the infantry. Because it is your bread and butter to essentially go around and run, crawl on your, your on your belt buckle and get muddy as an infantry soldier. We all done it for each other. We all hid things and we all pulled each other through courses and operational tours and, and things. So I was my own worst enemy. Mm. Well, we're going to come back to some of your points you've made because you've made some really interesting points in relation to transition. Um, but I want to bring Paul in and just hear a bit about your background first of all, Paul, before we go into some of the topics. Yeah, I mean, not not too dissimilar in, in some aspects to Colin in, in that I joined at 16, so a few weeks before my, my 17th birthday. So, you know, September 11th had, had not long happened and that was, was my kind of driver to, to join up, if I'm honest. I had no one, you know, I wasn't someone who grew up wanting to be in the military. It wasn't a career career projection or, or trajectory that I ever anticipated but I felt a sense of I don't know a sense you know it's calling it sounds a sense of duty so I yeah joined joined at, at 16 um joined the Royal Signal so went and done um trade training down in a place called Blandford so I became a communications engineer and quite quickly I realized that that my passion wasn't being a tradesman within the military it was being a soldier so I, I spent most of my time on attachment to to units such as Collins, to infantry battalions, um, and and yeah, I completed three three tours of Iraq, uh, and then my final tour was was in Afghanistan in two thousand and nine with um, the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, which is where yeah I had an ID and I was in a vehicle travelling, um, somebody calling an advance to contact. We were looking at kind of taking an enemy a Taliban compound, um, in Helmand Province, and and my vehicle rolled over an ID which resulted in myself and, and my crew um, being quite significantly injured. You know, at the time, you, you don't really know the significance. You don't really know the, the, the impact and potentially the catastrophic injuries that you've got. You, you're just very aware that, one, you're alive, but two, um, you know, you're trying to look at your surroundings and see how the rest of the team is doing, which, you know, when you're in the middle of a firefight, it's very difficult to do. But thankfully, you know, I was casivacked out um, by the Americans, which, trust me, if you've been on tours that Colin and I have, when you hear Americans flying overhead, it's more scary than anything else. <laughs> you know, they, they don't, all, they can't always determine friendly from foe. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, not like the RAF, which are which are which are safest houses. But but yeah, so I came back again, like Colin, done my rehab. You know, I still had my leg at the time, um, but it was pretty beaten up. Both my legs were pretty badly damaged, and eventually, uh, the, the the surgeons said that they they didn't feel they could save my right leg. Um, and they gave me two options. One was to stay in a wheelchair, you know, and keep my leg, um, or to, to have it amputated with the option of, of potentially walking again. And it was a very easy 
very easy decision, you know, from sitting there in front of the consultant, he told me to go away and think about it, and I said, there's absolutely no need, you know, I, I've, you know, I've spent the last, at this point, 10 months in a wheelchair, um, and if I had the option, even if it was just a small opportunity to try and walk again, I, I felt that I owed it to myself to, to at least attempt that, so from the point of making the decision to three weeks later, I was in, you know, had my leg um, electively amputated, and then about three or four weeks after that, I was in Headley Court and, and getting fit for a, a prosthetic and learning to walk again. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, a, a slightly different process from Colin. You know, I, I went and had my med board. And at the time, I think we were injured, that was 2009, when were you? 2000, my med board was 2005. Yeah, so, you know, four years of a difference in military got better at dealing with casualties. They got better at discharging people and helping them assimilate back into society. And, you know, the story that Colin's just told is one that I've heard many times. But for me, it was a slightly different process. You know, I had my med board and I pushed for a discharge. So, you know, for me, I had no aspiration of staying in the military and taking up, you know, it's very much dead man's shoes. I didn't want to take up somebody else's opportunity to promote. I joined the military for a reason. That was to go on operations and deploy and serve my country. And, and the thought of being stuck behind a desk. Um, just didn't appeal to me so you know as much as they offered me options to become a storeman to become an armourer a clerk you know various non-combat roles I, I was determined that, that if I couldn't be a soldier that I wanted to get out and and they granted that but you then you then have 12 months to transition so make sure that you've got all your, your, your kind of affairs in order and it was at that point I realised, I was like, I am qualified in absolutely nothing <laughs> other than being a soldier. And at that time, I didn't, I'd never heard the term transferable skills or or anything else. So, you know, that's when a bit like what Colin said, that sense of loss, even though it was a decision that I consciously made, the sense of loss in terms of my career, you know, you know, you go through a grieving process, mate, don't you? It's, yeah, it's really tough. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, I was 25 at this point, and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do in my life and and you know and that's a huge well that's a huge thing to at that age at the age that Colin and I were to to realize that your career's over you know you don't you know it's got to be over one day but you just don't expect it to happen at such a young age so so yeah and then it was all about you know the next phase which was transitioning and, and restarting your life all over again Mm. Uh, let's let's come on off the back of that let's come into this a bit about transition and resettlement because obviously you spoke there Paul about employment and what comes with employment is finances and budgeting so I just wanted to get a bit of an understanding in your words of um, we'll start with you Colin about what that feels like and what were the hurdles you had to overcome when the military gates are kind of shut I think my biggest barrier was that then when I went from my medical discharge, because my knees would constantly give way all day, every day, so I couldn't do any of the fitness tests, I couldn't hold a weapon, and if you, so they really said actually there's no roles fit that you could do because there are certain points that you should be achieving in your in any role, military role. So I thought when I when I was medically discharged, well, what can I do if if I can't be a chef, I can't be a clerk in in the military. I couldn't be like Paul said, an armor, armorer, or any other roles. Then what can I do? So that was a that was a huge question. So what what can I do? And I suppose the only thing for me is transition. Is I wasn't a fee paid foster carer. I'm still not fee paid foster carers. It's actually I can give up some room in my own home and get my family to integrate with another child in need. So that's that's kind of how I transitioned 
out of the military. It wasn't easy. Social workers, by their own nature, are not reliable. If they in the military, if you say I need I need this done by the close of play today, it'll be done by five o'clock today. If not, there's ramifications as you might get charged, aga, they call it in the military, for that. So your weekends, your spare time, your finances will be taken off you at the end of that if you don't complete your task. A social worker once said, oh, I'll get this to you by the end of the week. This was on a, a Tuesday, like today, and that is fair enough. By five o'clock Friday, I'll have all the information. And it was a visitation programme. Six weeks it took to get this visitation programme for this baby to see its mother. So the transition from... The, the ideal for me as a, as a, a soldier that served 14 years is five o'clock today means five o'clock today, not in six weeks' time. I didn't, I was a, a square peg trying to fit into a round, round hole. So that transition wasn't easy. And I've, it'll be fair to say, I threw my teddy out the pram on a few occasions. And so I'll bite my nose off to spite my face <laughs> if you can't, if you can't deliver what you're promising. And for me, it wasn't a, for me to be let down because. Hey, I'm a foster carer. It wasn't that at all because foster caring, it was a newborn baby. You know, all you're there for really is to look after this this child that can't be with its with its biological parents. It it was more about that that mother who had that child taken off her because she had a mental health condition and she couldn't help that, couldn't see her child for six weeks because they couldn't pull the finger out. I mean, I think your your point's really valid, Colin, that when you come out of the military, there's a I mean, I think, and I stand by this, I think you need to be a very specific type of person to join not just the military but any of the uniform services you know you're you're an ex-cop or dan you know that but fire you know fire firefighters and you know even ambulance staff to be a nurse you know to, to dedicate your life to a cause when you're not really paid that well you need to be a specific type of person and when i first transitioned out i was the same as you you know i went into my first job out the army was in banking and, and I, you know working in canary wharf i held people to a the standard that I expected in the military, and and I but I soon realised that actually my expectations of what people should be that was my hang up, and it, I didn't realise quickly. It took me a and I, I learned the hard way, you know. But I soon realised it was me that had to change. It was me, you know. This is a world that I'm trying to fit in. These people aren't trying to fit in my world, and and the amount of times that I hear, you know, Colin and I have both worked with veterans for. For a long time, um, the amount of times I hear that you know civvies don't get it, civvies don't understand, civvies can't do this, civvies can't do that, and I'm like, yeah, you're, you're probably right. I says, but this is their world, you know. We are coming in just like when we joined the army as civvies, we had to change to fit the mold the army needed us to be, and then now that we are transitioning back out, and and, and veterans, are, you know, transitioning out daily, the hardest thing to get your head around is that this is not your world anymore and that you need to assimilate and transition and adapt. And it's true what they say, you know, that you know, you, you have to adapt to overcome. And and it's mm. absolutely vital. And, and a bit like what Colin said, you know, my expectation of what people should somebody say something, you know, in the military that's set in stone. And then you try and then you know in, in the in the real world it's not. It's a bit mm. looser. And and actually once you can mentally get your head around that it's okay, you know, and, but that takes time. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, Colin done 14 years, I done, I done 11. It's a large part. That was a big, you know, the biggest part of an adult life, you know, both yeah. joining up so young. Some people do 25 years, 30 years to then, 
whatever, however you want to look at it, if you stay at any company that long, and that's what the military is, it's a, you know, it's a big organisation, you become um, institutionalised, you become so indoctrined into their way of doing things that any change is so difficult. And when you look at the way the military exists in terms of your finances, your accommodation, you know, literally everything is done for you. I mean, you are babysat through your entire career. And then you get guys coming out and girls coming out that don't have a clue what council tax is. They don't know how to register That's for right. a GP. And this is some of the stuff I'm sure we'll talk about. But that transition is 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 such a cultural shock. Um, not only trying to get your head around where you belong in that space, but then all the stuff that you're not taught in the military. Mm. It's just, I mean, it's an absolute minefield. Excuse the pun, because <laughs> it's an absolute minefield. I mean, it really is. Um, and the more awareness we can do, the more things like this, the, the, the stuff that Health Watch has been doing, and is absolutely critical because absolutely veterans have to be the ones to adjust. But we need society to be aware and have empathy that that, that adjustment takes time. Mm. You know, and not all squaddies, not all veterans are, are mad, bad and sad. They're not all crazy. I mean, Colin is, but, <laughs> you know, well, they just need that time to, 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 to settle back in and become a citizen again. And, and, you know, that's not always afforded to everyone. Yeah, I think it's really important some of the stuff you said there, Paul, and I'll bring Colin into some of that because I know from speaking to you before, Colin, in terms of like GP, for example, access, some of the civilian services that you're now using are very different, I can imagine, from the military services. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you an example. So in the, in the military, to just to say you don't feel very well, when I was serving, you had to get in your number two dress with your medals, your peak cap and everything else to report to say, I think I've got flu. So it was a very strict process going through. So but if I needed to see that my GP then, which is my med- my MO, my medical officer, I'd get to see her or him that day. If I needed a prescription that was there, I didn't have to pay for it or anything else like that. Civilian street is very different. So I, I had been mentally discharged and I had to register at this GP never registered a GP before because obviously joining up at 16 I wasn't an adult to go and choose a, a practice at that at that point so it's all brand new so my wife took me across and said what well, is the GP that we use and I, my wife was in Bury St Edmunds I was down in Purbright in Surrey so this is one who you go register for and I come in and I sat down and this big red LED banner said Mr Branch Room I can't remember the number so 27 for example okay where do I go where's the signage and I'm already oper- for me uh, being a Northern Ireland veteran you're always operationally aware so I challenge myself now generally I'd sit in a corner so I'd see my exits and the entries and stuff today I've got a big glass window it doesn't make me feel very comfortable but it's something that I always try and challenge myself but this GP come out and went branch and I thought who the hell are you talking to I'm a mister now I'm the most important rank in the world who the hell are you talking about? And it was my anxiety more than anything else because it was a brand new experience. I followed him into his to his little practice room and I thought, well, you're here to advise a guy and prescribe anything I, I need and have a, a first initial medical. And that was that was my perception of what was going to happen. He didn't even give me any eye contact, didn't talk to me, just looked at his computer screen and said, what's the matter with you? So automatically, I, I well, I'm not talking to you if you're not talking to me. Put my head down, fold my arms all in a defiant manner. I said, well, I don't know. You're the professional. You tell me. 
So I haven't got time here to, to, today to, to go through your whole medical records where well, well, you should because you're meant to be my doctor. And I noticed there was a clock above my head. So I thought, well, actually, I've only got a few minutes of his time anyway, but you should be asking me, you know, you just come out of the military. How are you? How are you settling in? You know, it's a, it's a big emotional change going through. So I said, well, if you don't know what's wrong with me, what's the point of me seeing you? So I kind of left in a kind of angry manner. My wife doesn't, one one good thing the military is good for you, especially if, you, if you're like, like Paul said that early, you know, you want to be a soldier, you learn how to put your aggression on and, and turn it off really, really easily and to control yourself and manage your, your emotions. My wife still states to this day, I come out and I look as red as Father Christmas does. <laughs> when he said, I was absolutely fuming. And my wife said, what's the matter with you? I said, I'm not talking that oxygen thief. And I walked out and I said, I'm not ever going back to that GP practice again. So I left it a couple of days. And my wife kind of coached me through and said, well, you're going to have to talk to the GP practice. Obviously, we've got a lot going on with you physically. This needs to be addressed. So I found that the GP practice said, look, I'm, I'm a soldier. I've just come out of the military. I don't know this world. And they assigned me to a different GP. This guy was, I can't think of his last name, but Eugene, and he came in and said, Mr. Branch, is there a Mr. Branch here? When I went to my appointment, I said, hi there, that's me. He shook my hand, he come in, and he had a 10-minute conversation with me. So I've already read your documentation here. This is what I think with the, your pathway needs to be. That, for me, was a huge game changer. And I thought, well, I come out really, really happy. I felt I was um, triaged and prescribed and treated all in that one sitting, but he, he talked and listened to me. For me, as a, as a learning point, I need to communicate, like Paul was stating earlier, to the people I need to deal with to get the results that I need so I can have a, a better quality of life. I need to let them know about things that I need. And for me, that was a, a massive thing for saying, oh, now I need to communicate with people. I don't need to direct them. I don't need to know what time I'm going to have my breakfast, my lunch, my tea, or my naffy break, or me your mess break, or anything else like that. That's for me to decide that for me to get the best out of my life now moving forward is for me to open up and communicate with people. So it was, it, it was interesting. Yeah, it sounds it. Absolutely, it does. Um, no, I appreciate that, Colin. Uh, Paul, I want to bring you in in terms of budgeting and, and finance and paying bills because you mentioned you touched on it earlier. Uh, what, what does that feel like, having to leave, like now be on your own doing things like that? But for, for me, you know, I, because of the nature of my injuries, you know, I got a, a military pension, so I get like a guaranteed pension every month. I got a lump sum, so I was able to to buy a house or the, the deposit for the house. But but when I look at other people and their reasons for leaving, whether it be discipline or you know mental health or just that they they, they decided that that lifestyle wasn't for them, you know people's attitudes towards finances are very different. You know, in, in the military, there's a there's a, there's a term millionaires weekend, um, and I can imagine it's very similar for students actually where. You know, you get paid on the first of the month or the, the last day of the month, and you know that no matter what happens to that money, your accommodation's paid for, all your bills are paid for, you've got three square meals a day, right? So, you know, whatever else happens, you've got that. So the amount of times that you will see in any military town, Colchester, the closest one to here, that on the first of the month, every pub will be absolutely packed with soldiers, sailors, airmen, whatever, right? And they will splash all of that money on a weekend and then they don't need to worry about the rest of the month because they know they've got the necessities which is a roof over their head a bed to lie on and food right so then you fast forward to somebody leaving 
and all of a sudden they have got to understand the different bills, utility bills, which they've probably never paid. Most people join the military at 16, 17, 18. So they've, you know, I don't, I've never met anybody who had a house or a family and then joined the military. Everybody that I know joined. Same here. So, I yeah, don't I mean, ev everybody that I know, when I look at my intake of basic training, the 60 or 70 of us, there wasn't one of us over 18. <laughs> so, you know, chances are everybody was living at home. So had all of that stuff taken care of as any parent would do. And then you look at when they transition out and, you know, debt is a massive thing. You know, squaddies, soldiers get into huge amounts of debt because they don't know about budgeting. Uh, you know, coping mechanisms are, are predominantly around alcohol. You know, there's a massive drinking culture in the military. And I know that that's something that they've been trying to move away from for years. It was still there when I left. You know, so there's, you know, people seem to hide their issues and drink and actually the easiest thing to do when you're struggling is put your head in this, you know bury your head in the sand so you know the, the, the previous role that I had to the one that I've got now supporting veterans in this area um, who'd been injured or wounded you know they still struggled you know the amount of guys that I came across who had six figure lump sums because of their injuries who are now in debt four or five years on I, I've lost count you know, because there was no financial management. Nobody was taught how to invest that money or what that money was actually for. They were just, you know, lying in a hospital bed, given a lump sum. And then all of a sudden, you know, as a 21-year-old from, you know, the Curzel in Canvey Island, probably grown up with absolutely nothing, to all of a sudden having 600 grand in the bank, you know, you're an easy target. Um, and I'm not talking about anybody specifically, but, you know, that that, that happened more frequently than you would imagine. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, you take away those who didn't get compensation, that don't have a guaranteed pension, all of a sudden it's a, it's a huge undertaking. And, and you can't really work out, you know, people are leaving the military for parity of wages without taking into consideration that their accommodation was paid for, their food was paid for, not understanding what that transition looks like in terms of what it could cost going forward. And like I said, the amount of guys that I know that got out and, and, and struggled with debt, struggled with finance and, you know, ended up going down a lot of dark places. And, you know, it's a it's a pandemic in its own right. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know the military's doing more now. I still, from what, I've, what I hear, I don't think they're doing enough. I think there's a lot more that needs to be done in that transition space because you know if you can get that part right if you can set people up with the right foundations that the chances of a successful transition surely must go up i mean you know you, you still work in the sector colin i'm sure that you're still seeing people day in day out with financial hardship every single day every single day now if you go through the medical discharge process now within in the military the military will put you through foundation courses and and so that helped with understanding what what debt management would be like or financial management and, and the bills and the amount of sold, soldiers, whether they be whatever service, Army, Navy, Air Force, male or female, don't understand the, the terminology for council tax in the military is silo. And they, they might pay £14, £18 a month for that. And then when they get out and they realise actually within it's £100 a month, they, they can't compute that. No. So, but it, these are the soldiers that get their service men and women that get the help through their PRO or their recovery unit that's helping them go through their foundation and transition courses. 
but that's only the small amount of people yeah. that are getting medically discharged. The large, the large cohort of service personnel leaving don't get anything like that. No, and, I, and I, I, I think that's a great point that if you are like if you get injured, you know, and you're losing your career through through injury, that's 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 a travesty in itself. But you know, we all assume the risk, right? We know the risk when we join up. You know, we know what could potentially happen from the worst extreme to to, to, to why we're here now. But you're absolutely right. Those who are medically discharged on duty, that are the responsibility of the state, that transition, I personally think that I was transitioned very well. You know, and that's, I know not everybody will agree with me. I mean, you had a very different process, Colin. But people who leave through other means that don't get that support, that wraparound care, that is a different world. You know, it's an absolute different, and that is, as you mentioned, the mid, the ninety five percent, the ninety five percentile. So, you know, so it's great that we look after our wounded, and, and rightly so. You know, guys and, and girls have been injured in the service, but we, you can't then forget about the majority of veterans who, just because they weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they're leaving with all their limbs intact, that doesn't mean that they then shouldn't get the same level of transition. Do you think more can be done in terms of planning and preparation when leaving the military? I know things have, I'm sure, got better over the years, but do you think there's more that can be done? There's always more that the MOD could do to help the transition. There's, they're, they're doing an awful lot more now. So the resettlement packages now is depending on the length of service that, you, that you've had. Um, my future son-in-law is now, he's now on his resettlement course at the moment, he's becoming a gas engineer. Probably at the moment, not the, prop, the most ideal <laughs> trade to go in at the moment, but he's on his last week of his six-week course. It, it's, a, it's a lot better. Do you think, though, my, my, this is just my view, you know, there are other views available out there. You know, I've got to get that caveat in. I think, I think that that's a flaw in the resettlement system, that, you know, if you've done 15, 20 years, yep, you've given your service, you've done your time, you deserve to be suppose compensated in some way in terms of a, a, a gold standard resettlement package. Yet if you do three years, you get the absolute bare minimum. Um, but quite often it's those early leavers that are leaving because of an underlying issue. Yeah. And they're then given virtually nothing to transition. And for me, they're the ones that most at risk. They're probably the ones that haven't saved for a deposit. They're probably the ones that don't have any structure. I mean, let's not, you know, and I don't want to stereotype, but the army recruits from specific areas of the country that are low in standard of education. You know, they don't recruit from the affluent areas, right? So, you know, I think I read a report that the average reading age of an infantry soldier, this is no bigger calling, is about 11 at the time of joining. That's now. When I joined, it was seven. It was seven. And actually, you didn't have to have any GCSEs. You know. I did, so I could read or write. And I had to fill out all the leave forms and a few yeah. for my platoon when I first got to battalion. But and so most most of the guys I saw were couldn't even read. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the people that I know that joined up, I joined up, you know, like I said, because of September, but also to get away from where I was from. And a lot of people join up to escape something, whether that be an upbringing, you know, any abuse that they received as a kid, the you know the fact that where they're from might have no opportunities you know they might be from an old mining village up north or now you know where there's no prospects so to then join the military and leave after such a short time and not really be offered that much in terms of support you you're literally setting them up to fail you know you're creating a societal problem you're not fixing one 
And so, yeah, I mean, Colin's right, there's always more that can be done. I mean, the one thing I would caveat is somebody told me, it was a piece of advice that I completely ignored, and in hindsight, I wish I, I hadn't, that you should start planning your transition the day you join. Because unlike most jobs where you join as an 18-year-old, you know, you join a bank at 18, as long as you you do your job, you could probably be in that job until you retire. You know, I, I was came across people at Barclays that had been in the job 35, 36, 37 years. I suppose like athletes, the military's got a finite time. You can only do a maximum of a so many years. And then it comes to an end whether you like it or not, because that is the rules. So you know the day you join up that one day you're going to leave that job and you're going to need to transition into something. But it's hard to imagine that as an 18 or 16 year old in 20 years time, where am I going to be? But I think the onus has to be put on the soldiers themselves, you know, and that's not, and I, I, that's not sloppy shoulders, but they should be empowered early on in their career to start looking at their transition going forward and make them the masters of their own destiny. Because, you know, getting people to think about it a year before they leave and then stuff like Colin and I where it's it comes completely out of left field where you're not expecting it mm. you know people should be prepared you know we should be preparing our, 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 our young soldiers sailors airmen early on in their career for the eventuality of transition because it's going to come yeah you know I, t- I totally agree and it's, it, it, I was watching a program last night my wife said you know this would, this would have been you if you didn't join the military so I come from a little town of Hadley, which is just down the road from here, and there's a program called Brassic. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on yeah, the sky. My wife was a crime of laughter last night. I said, oh my god, if you didn't join the military at the age of sixteen, this would have been you and your mates. <laughs> and sure enough, you, you look at some of my mates that I, I'm still very close <laughs> with, and we WhatsApp each other on a daily basis, normally to take the Mickey out me being bald, overweight, and and stumpy person with a limb lo- with limb loss. But that is. That is them to a T. You know, they are some of them are career criminals. Some of them have got <laughs> profound mental health difficulties. And he makes a laugh and a joke out of it. But we watched it last night. And I said, "What? Why? Why? Why are you? Why are you crying with laughter, Sahab? Because that was you if you didn't join the military. Mm-hmm. And that is from the demographic that I was recruiting from. I'm the youngest out of five. All my other brothers are joined the military. My mum was really, really strict, and it was quite a violent upbringing. So for me, it was an escape from my from my um, my other friends, well, they were, you know, it's car theft or burglary or something like that. Yeah, in your last last career, Dan, you'd probably mm. be hunting my my, my <laughs> mates down, kind of thing. So, to, you know, it resonates with me. And yeah, last night was quite cool. comical, actually. And I thought, you know what? She's absolutely right. Great. I don't know which character I'd be. Though, no, uh, yeah, I was going to say, great <laughs> program, Michelle, by the way. Michelle Keegan. Yeah. Or the farmer. <laughs> the farmer is brilliant in that. The farmer is the best. My anger. He's got my anger to the point. (laughs) If you haven't seen Brassic, go and watch it. Absolutely. Sky Atlantic or whatever channel it's on. And actually, if you ever watch his or listen to his podcast, the the main character there, they're actually based on his true life events. Wow. Amazing. So I want to bring up identity because I think it's massive. Um, We've spoken about transition and resettlement and some of the hurdles you have to overcome. But actually identifying a veteran, I think, is very interesting, not just in terms of the perception of the public, but also the veteran themselves. Um, I mean, this is, I I think this is such an individual, I don't think there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I mean, for me, I struggled, you know, I struggled with it. You know, I, I was very much one of these, you know, I'm a veteran when I first came out. You know, anytime I went anywhere, it was I'm a veteran. I, I should get X, Y, and Z and, and, and whatnot. And 
and and I suppose part of that didn't help that when I when I left, I went into a job. You know, I was running a veterans program for a, for a bank, and so I was still surrounded in that environment. And then I done that for five years, and I left and joined a veterans charity. So again, I was still very much in that world, and and it's only been since I started my new job at the turn of this year that actually what. I now see myself as I'm an individual who just so happened to one day, I once upon a lifetime served in the military. So I'm absolutely proud to be a veteran. But it took me, well, it took me probably um, about nine years to get to the point where I don't see myself as a veteran first. And if some people see themselves as veterans first for the whole life, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but now I... I like to think that that's not what defines me. I like to think that being an amputee doesn't define who I am, um, but it's part of me. And, and it's a part of me that I'm not ashamed of or I'm embarrassed about. Um, but I think that for me, it was important to have something in my life that wasn't directly linked to my military service, you know, and, and it's taken me a long time to get that. Um, other people don't ever, they want to be in that environment. And I get that. You know, and, and that's not that I'm right and they're wrong or that I'm better or they're better. It's 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 such an individual thing and we speak about how people identify and I think it's important the, the one caveat I would add is it's important that we get it right for when there's services available specifically for veterans. So for example, the GP accreditation that, that I know you've been working on, Dan, in the NHS England are rolling out nationally. You know, and also the military covenant, you know, if you are a veteran and you feel you've been disadvantaged in any way because of your military service, then there is a time and a place to absolutely call that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 genuinely horses for courses. I mean, everybody that I know sees it slightly different. Some are very proud once a year at Remembrance, they dust off their medals, they get their berry on, they'll march at the Cenotaph, and then they don't want to talk about it for the, the rest of the year. You know, what's happened in Afghanistan has made people, again, see things differently. And and I just don't think there's. I mean, it'll be interesting your colleagues' views. I don't. I, I just don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer. I mean, I, you know. No, I, I I think you're right. It's some of the things I've been working on with Norfolk and Suffolk a few years ago is on their their mental health provision for for veterans healthcare other than the chills that's available. Is that when I have meetings with them, they say, so we're going to call all these this cohort of people veterans. I said, well, some would like to be called veterans, like Paul was just alluding to. Some of them, you might just start asking the GP practice, have you ever served in the military? So some of them don't want to be known as veterans. Some want to be known as an ex-service personnel because they haven't they haven't served on operations and they don't feel they, they can wear that, that, that badge. I was very much like Paul, you know, I'm a veteran. I'm a veteran even to the point at uh, a few years ago, my younger son said, when we said, what, what do you want to, what do you want for your birthday? And it was the, uh, uh, I chuckled because I want a veterans discount card or a GG defense discount because my wife would say, oh, do you this? Because there are certain perks about being a veteran. You know, you get 50% off of Domino's where I live and, and things. And, you know, you go to New Look and, and you go to go outdoors and if you like camping and, and things. There, there's You're a New Look all the time then, yeah. <laughs> Head to toe, New Look, always. Other Especially shops are available. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some someone that leaves services will have facial hair. Some of us, I still shave twice a day, so I'm so institutionalised. Now, my wife, if I have any stubble at all, I won't get a kiss off my wife. So for me, it's well, actually, I'm not going to get a kiss. I'm going to make sure I have a shave, and it's, it's that forms that part of your your routine and, and your habit of life. But some of us will 
be cleanly shaven, some of us won't. There's a massive cohort of us that are heavily tattooed because it's, is it therapy? It's a stereotype. It's a very big stereotype. Some of us wear cartoon characters, some of them wear more serious ones, and and I've got other serious ones in different parts of my body, but they all, most of us with tattoos, are either regiment or they mean something something, now. Most of mine, all mine is all about family and if you think you ask them, it's a complete business thing, but it means something to me or I've got a picture of my, my, my brother tattooed on my leg, who, who was also a Royal Anglin, but sadly passed away a few years ago. It's about the remembrance of, of that. My back's all tattooed with Matt, a big military tattoo as well, in remembrance of friends that didn't make it back from operational tours, mm. or some of them got severely injured and, and things. Do, so that, do, Colin, do you think as well, I mean, there's a point you made earlier around, you know, when, when you're working in Norfolk and Suffolk around that, identifying as a vet and, and and it's something you said that, that I think really resonates you know and that was around how you ask the question because I it I didn't see myself as a veteran when I first left people kept calling me a veteran and I was like I'm, I'm not you know like my You're too I, young yeah my perception rightly or wrongly because I mean the definition is you serve one day in the military mm. that defines you as a veteran but just because that's a dictionary definition doesn't mean that's how people perceive it and for me, veterans are those old boys, those heroes of World War II yeah. that are at the cenotaph with their medals on, you know, and their berries. That to me is what a veteran looks like. You know, I see my, you know, I would always say I was ex-military mm-hmm. rather than a veteran. And I think that, that that question around initially when GP surgeries and, and other other you know councils and people were asking those, you know, are you a veteran? I think some people would have been ticking no, not because they weren't they, they, they weren't proud of being a veteran or being in the military. Mm-hmm. They probably just didn't relate to that word. And actually, whereas, you know, so that, for me, there's, there's a, it's a very ambiguous term, whereas something like, did you serve in the military? That's a yes or no. There's no right, there's no, there's mm-hmm. no, there's, there's no non-binary answer. And, you know, going back to my previous job at Blesma, you know, we looked after veterans who had lost limbs and I used to do a lot of work at the, um, at the limb centre. So Harold Wood, which has now moved to Brentwood, um, <clears throat> Limb Centre, I used to say to them, you know, can you ask people if, and the amount, you know, if, if they serve in the military, but they would default to, are you a veteran? And the amount of gentlemen, predominantly male, that I would meet who said no, but then I would notice, like like Colin just said, I'd notice an identifying mark on their arm and a tattoo. <laughs> and I'd be like, excuse me, so, you know, did you, did you serve in the military? He's like, yeah. I said, did they not ask? He said, yeah, but I'm not a veteran. I only, I only did national service. And I'm like, yeah, but you're still a veteran. You still served. You, 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 you responded to that call to arms. And then we were able to support them and get them the support that, that, that we could as a charity. So I think that that, that perception of the word is also individual. Mm. You know, some people are ex-forces, ex-military, veteran. Some people don't want any, you know, they had a bad experience and they don't want to remember their time in the military. Mm. So it's, it's such an individual, I mean, it's, it's an identity yeah. that we all have. But it's very unique. It's really interesting as well because how important is it to go to your GP and, and be coded as a veteran and them saying they're not a veteran, so therefore they don't get coded because the terminology was wrong. The wrong in, in not so much the eyes of the GP, but they're asking what they think is a simple question. Yeah, it's not malicious. Exactly. That. It's, it's it's just not understanding the audience probably the best that they could have. Mm. Whereas, like I said, asking a question that gives you a very definitive answer: mm. Did you serve in the military? That's just a for me, it's a yes or no. Yeah, yeah. but discreetly as well, because we've, for us, especially with Help Heroes, we've had had to 
not intervene, but help other GP practices and not accredited to actually look at the audience who they're asking for. Because if there is a, if that person that served in the military is looking a little bit anxious and that receptionist saying, well, did he serve? Did he not serve? That's the question I'm going to ask. Most GP practices and their, and their receptionists are quite loudly spoken, so you can hear all the medical information given. Mm -hmm. And if there is a code hall, say uh, if you lived in Luton, for example, most veterans there won't say they're a veteran, certainly not in Cardiff, that's for sure. They won't say they're a, they're a veteran because they're worried about the ramifications that could bring on their home, their, in their local housing estate and things like that. Uh, so it's just about doing that mm. discreetly and just say, look, you can write it on a bit of a post-it note or a bit of paper or so. Have you ever served in the military? Well, I, I, and get them to read I the think, question. I think if the they census, can. you know, that was a game changer. Having that question right. in the census, yeah. you know, because we, you know, coming from the military charity sector, that, that Colin and I can, I think, speak the level of authority. Yeah. You get asked a lot how many vet, you know, and you know, you can, there's calculations you can do in terms of how many people served, but there's no way of knowing when someone, you know, someone potentially passes away or whatever. If they're, how many veterans are still active today? Or, ex-military people are still active so the census I think will give us um, a level of data that we've just never had in this country and that will hopefully help the charity sector and, and the social sector really start to be more tailored in their approach. Yeah to pinpoint and identify the areas where they exactly. are. Exactly. Mm. No I think it's interesting. Um, I want to kind of come to the last part now which is going to be in relation to the kind of support that is out there but I want to bring in isolation and loneliness and kind of abandonment so to speak because I think there's this sense from uh, some military veterans that they feel like they're kind of alone they're kind of perhaps too proud to ask for help but I know from knowing you guys that there's thousands of charities out there to support military veterans so I just wanted to get your kind of perception I'll start with you Colin about the support that's out there and perhaps some of the barriers to seeking that support. Yes yeah, so I suppose through my experience of working within the, the military charity sector now for a few years the biggest barrier is, is for that that ex-service person or the veteran or their family member, loved one, get them to actually ask for help. There's that pride. You are trained to stand up straight, put your neck in the back of your collie, sit up straight. So if you sat up when any rank was in the room, you, you, your fists are on your knees and your arms locked out because it's like standing to attention and sitting down. Is is getting them to come forward and ask for that help and assistance. That's one of the biggest barriers that I find within my role of getting men and women come forward and say, I actually need that help. And that's one of the biggest barriers that I tend to come across on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And Paul, do you think that there's a massive stigma attached to kind of mental health within the military? I know that in uniform services is very similar as well. There's that kind of you know, I'm I'm a roughy tufty squaddy. I'm a roughy tufty copper. I don't need any help because you know I'm I'm big and yeah. I'm tough. Do you think that's still the same in the military? Do you think that's carried across? I I I, I think it is. I, I think it's better than it's ever been. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think you know op courage. Um, you know, and I'm proud to have been part of that process. Um, from one of the roles that I hold within NHS England has really, you know, we're trying to show it that it, the first step asking for help is a courageous step. You know, and that was where the name was born out of. Um, I, my personal thing, I, I think that it's a minefield. Veterans don't, you know, there's massive charities like Health for Heroes that everybody knows about, but there is so much out there that sometimes, I've, from the, the, the feedback I've had, it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think there is too many military charities? Uh, there's over 2,700 currently, I believe. Yeah, I, 
look, I'm sure they all do an amazing job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, and you've got something like the Veterans Gateway, which kind of acts as that centralised hub. Um, but but I also think I can, you know, and Colin probably can't comment on this because of his job. I, I no longer work in the sector, so I can speak freely. I think there needs to be more collaboration amongst the charities. No, I agree. And we're now starting to do that. You know, my more. sense was that people were very protective of their beneficiaries, yeah. their cohorts, when actually my outlook when I when I worked in the sector was always, I don't care how they get the support. I don't care if it's me. I don't care if it's Colin that gives them. I don't care if it's someone else. As long as the objective, which is helping that veteran get the support that they need, happens. And I get that for every pound that's up for grabs from a donor, from, from grants, they're all competing. Eight years ago, Help for Heroes had so much income coming in, we could they couldn't spend the money quick enough. So if you needed a bathroom ad- adaptations at £10,000, they'd pay that. Now, we haven't got that as a charity, one, because of the pandemic, two, because actually, military operations are not in the public eye like, like it was when the the, the conflict in Afghanistan and, and Iraq was was about and soldiers were sadly coming home in caskets rather than coming home to see the loved ones. Mm. So one, one of the things that we've been pushing out, and I've only been pushing this out more recently this week with one of my grants officers, is to say, actually, yes, I can sign off for that to be spent, and but we don't... It's, it's like the world's best kept secret. We harmonise now with lots of charities, and we have been for a very long time, but something that some other charities are doing or that veteran or that service person are doing and say well actually Blesma paid £15,000 for my house to be adapted so it's wheelchair friendly and if what that veteran might not know actually Blesma might have put 5000 to it mm. Help Heroes might have put 5000 to it and then the RBL might put, or their regiment or a core association might have put £5,000 to it it's actually to say that to the veterans so they can go away and say I had help from military charities but we all work together for that mm. the lead charity might have been Blesma or it might have been Help for Heroes however these are the people yeah, it's been a collaboration that help and yeah. there, there is you're right and, and, and should I say it or should I not it's, yeah, as, as a veteran I know that the heads of the big, big charities within within this country are competing for funds and everything else. And you know, I'm talking like the directorships and the CEOs of the charities. A lot of there's a lot of politics up in the up mm-hmm. in the sky with that. But actually, on the on the ground day to day basis, Paul and I used to contact contact each other quite regularly about yeah. veterans that we're both supporting. So actually, if you're leading on that, I'll tell my case manager back off, and we're just shadow in the background, and we're here if you need, or vice versa. So actually, on a ground level, we work collaboratively in the partnership yeah. not 100% of the time because sometimes we're just not aware mm-hmm. so we might be doing a lot of support I mean, what, look, bring look, up, look, so look, what you're doing I'm yeah. doing this well I didn't know I so. mean let's be look not all veterans are angels some of them play, <laughs> play the system that's yeah. a, it's a sad state of affairs you know there's veterans out there who will exploit the goodwill that, that exists um you know, and and we off we would come across that with somebody's playing trying to play oh, charities off. Think of one already, yeah. yeah you know, we, so, we work closely on. Yeah, I mean, it, look, look, I, I think the sector's definitely going in the the right direction. I think Colin's right. You know, what the the I suppose the chief execs, the senior people, the politicians that are making the decisions, that's great at the top. What what really makes a difference is people that Colin on the ground that are at the coal face. You know, people that understand that community um, and, and the work that needs done within mm. there because you know for all the, the the veteran doesn't care where the money comes from if they need support they need support and sometimes you've got to park bureaucracy 
Mm. Um, you can't let bureaucracy get in the way of trying to support the beneficiaries that, that need help. Mm. You know, and and for some charities, again, I can speak very freely. The reserves that some charities hold, in my opinion, is an absolute disgrace. Okay. You know, because I get a rainy day. I understand that. I understand the concept of putting a little bit aside, but you know, veterans need support now, and and some charities, you know, hoard huge amounts of cash and there was a report um i think it's telegraphed on it a few years ago where they outed the top 10 or top 20 and when you see that amount of money that's sitting in that sector it's it's tough you know wow. it's tough as a veteran when i see my friends and, and people that i serve with suffering i'm fortunate i'm okay now you know but when i see people really struggling i think there's a lot more that can be done um and that the sector the sector needs to react do you think there's a lot more that can be done in terms of those that perhaps do slip through the net, so to speak, and find themselves isolated or even homeless in some cases? What what more can be done there, or is there that kind of? There's only so much you can do. Is there the veteran needs to help himself as well? Is what I'm trying to get yeah, at. Yeah, there's there's always there's always a way that a veteran or or that family member can help. You've got the veterans breakfast clubs that happen. I think there's one in one in Colchester that happens or used to run every third Saturday of every month. And things and a veteran only needs to download an app called Forces Connect or go into the Veterans Gateway and you'll see how much support there actually is. There's more support for veterans in this country than any other sector. So, for example, for the police, you've got police federation and you might have an Essex branch of of that. How many more do you mm. do you know of mm. the NHS? If it wasn't Pretty for Captain point. Tom, mm. you know, how many other people? could support really the NHS point. workers. But for us as a veteran community, there's... A huge amount of support. And, a bit, and like Paul said, it, then it becomes overwhelming. So the best place for that veteran or that loved one to go to is on either Forces Connect if they've got a smartphone or on the Veterans Gateway mm. and they can see exactly what's going on, where the local breakfast clubs are. So social isolation, actually, they yeah. can go and have a breakfast but be around like-minded people because mm. we, we have got our own language. which is like a patchwork uh, and, and things. The way we can communicate... And we're coarse, we're brash, we're rude, we're belligerent a lot of the time, and, and on purposely so as well, because that's the way we're kind of institutionalised and that's the way we communicate. So those veterans and next service personnel can attempt them, knowing they're not going to be judged if they say something that's a little bit dark, humoured. One of the hardest things I think I heard in the, in the, in the six years that I worked for Blesma was at the start of lockdown, so obviously we, all, we were all coming into an area of the unknown. We didn't know that it was going to rumble on this long. We didn't know the consequences, the the impact it would have on our communities. And I remember um, something that me and, and, and my colleagues were doing was phoning around all of the veterans that sat under our patch. And the amount of older or more mature veterans that I spoke to, and when I was asking, you know, are you okay? And the amount of them that said, this is no different to my normal life. That 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 broke my heart because I thought, well, that's good in that situation because actually you're okay. They're you're safe. Open. Yeah. yeah. But there's a wider societal issue there that mm. if people if people don't know the difference in their lifestyle because of COVID, because actually the only person that they see week in or day in, day out is a carer. You know, we what what COVID is what I've seen of COVID. Some of the positives, a lot of negatives. One of the positives is communities have came together. Yeah, and and I think that that as we come out of COVID, there is and it's this by the way is not just for veterans. This is this is just for in general. Yeah, in general, in today's world with the way we are connected, nobody should be isolated. 
I agree, and I think it's interesting, Colin, that you brought up the Veterans Breakfast Club because I think they're working very well from what I'm hearing. I've engaged with a few of them, and they've been fantastic. And I think, you know, for every district, if there's one of those, I think the world would be a better place, certainly for the lives of veterans. Yeah, and they're all they're all over the country. Say if, if that if that ex-service personnel or veteran can go and attend, and then they feel that little bit more comfortable. And sometimes that one visit, that one outing, is enough to get them out to get the confidence to go out to the local post office or yeah. news agents to go and buy a paper and then it, it's that one step then it's the next step the next step and all of a sudden they're out three or four days a week yeah. and then within six months or so they're out pretty much every day and actually the wives are saying why don't you come back i want to see you i'm not seeing you anymore <laughs> so they 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 go through their own transition of, of, of a little bit of a lost feeling yeah. so now this guy's out walking every day with his other veteran friends and, and things so it's, it's no, sometimes it's a trade-off but there is there is an awful lot of support out there for us no it's great and i think it's good to kind of come to a close on a positive to be honest um we have got something a little bit different to kind of finish with which is going to be something which we call full disclosure. Um, I'm going to ask for some cards to be handed to you and you're going to ask some, people, some questions. Okay. Uh, and right. uh, they're going to be quite interesting, I believe. So um, we're going to leave that for, uh, for next. First question is, what's the best advice someone has given you? Never self-reject. <laughs> Never self-reject, yeah. Let somebody else reject you. <laughs> best advice given me was was actually get myself on the housing market before I left the military. That's probably the best advice. That's strong. Okay, so finish this sentence. No one talks about... Mental health problems in the veteran community. Okay. So for me, no one talks about how bad Arsenal Football Club really is. <laughs> what did you want to be when you were growing up? I wanted to be an architect. But I couldn't draw, so. And I want to be a doctor. But am I reading and writing as an infantry soldier? All the dictates <laughs> to why I wasn't a doctor. Okay, so what is your biggest fear? Heights. I fell when I was in, in training and my anchor man with the rope stopped me. I only realised I was falling at like 12 to 18 feet and I could see the, the ground rushing up towards my face. So I don't like heights. And then I got posted to Colchester as part of 24 air mobile gate and I was pathfinder of a tomb when my key role was absent in that helicopters. Lovely. My biggest fear is is suffocating. I don't know why. It's just a nightmare that I've had in the past. The thought of yeah, not being able to catch my breath is something I fear quite regularly. If you had ten thousand pounds for a good cause, what would you do? Oh, that's a great one. I oh, that gets caught me off guard. It would probably be. Um, for children with sensory, sensory deprivation. Okay. something I'm really passionate about. I think I'm not far too dissimilar to that. Mine would probably go to like a young carers charity to, yeah. to get the kids from a young age and that to be understood as they go through adolescence. Yeah, great. Fantastic. What is your biggest regret? Losing my hair. <laughs> not, not my limbs, but my hair. And that's that's <laughs> only because... My three other brothers been bald body age between 18 and 21, and I ripped into them every single day I could, squeaking my forehead and and then being mentally discharged and other health complications, and my medication now makes my hair fall out. So that's my biggest regret, because I didn't realise I was going to go bald at the age of 36. Uh, my, my biggest regret is probably not appreciating how much fun I had in the army at the time. I was the typical guy who whinged about it all the time, thinking it was the worst thing ever. 
And then on reflection, looking back, I had an amazing 11 years. Share a story of when someone or something has inspired you. Someone or something. Um, I don't have just one. We come across inspirational people all the time. There was one, and it was it was a young lad, Tony, during the um, during lockdown, who'd done a walk. I, I think he was inspired by Captain Tom, and this young lad who was abused as a kid, Tony Hudgel is his name, massive on social media. He's only five or six now, double amputee, lost his legs because of the abuse that he suffered. And when you see the resilience of this young lad, you you. As us as I'm, I really whinge now because I just think of Tony. Absolute inspiration at, at that young age. Yeah. Mine stems to an, another veteran that's stuck in a wheelchair. He's going to be losing a leg. But when you when you talk to him and you get to know him, you realise actually he's not just got a bad leg and he's going to be losing his legs. He's probably one of the most resilient men I've ever, ever met, ever had the privilege to meet as well. And you, you meet him and he's been... Every, he's had like 12 strokes. He, every time he goes to the theatre, he dies on the table if we bring him back round. And, and he's got so many health conditions going on. You, you couldn't write them down on one bit of April paper. And these are serious, serious health conditions. Yeah. And you say, hello, mate, how are you? I'm all right. Could be worse. And you re I really <laughs> can't ever think of a day where it could be worse. Yeah. Re really couldn't. And he, he's quite an inspiration, yeah, really strong guy. Okay, so last question. What would be the title of your life story? That's a really, really good question. I'd hope it'll be caring and empathetic. Mate, that's boring. Come on. You can do better. How I lost my hair. <laughs> yeah. Or when I was on ITV a, few, a couple of years ago, then, then it, was, uh, it started off Colin Branch as an army veteran. Every single day on WhatsApp, by my high school friends, my Brassett group of friends, <laughs> I get a voicemail every single day. Colin Branch is an army veteran. He is also bleep, 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 bald. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, it's, it's, it's something similar. It, yeah, when I look at what my mates have got me in their phone as, which is not suitable to air just now, um, but for offline. But I think it was something that somebody said to me, and it's always, he went, you're all right for a Scotsman. <laughs> and, and I kind of and at the time I took it as an insult and I thought nah actually I'm alright with that so I think that would be my I'm alright he's all, he's alright for a Scotsman not good not bad just alright uh, gentlemen thank you so much for both joining us we really appreciate it uh, it's been great for you to uh, give us your time today so thanks very much no it's my pleasure um, it's been great to see Colin again and, and keep up all the great work you're doing yeah, I okay that. Yeah, thanks very much for the opportunity. No, Paul Collin, thank you both so, so much. Uh, this is a series of a podcast. You're going to see a lot more uh, from us and hear a lot more from us. This in particular is in relation to uh, what matters to military veterans. You can, uh, if you want to, look at our report on the Healthwatch Essex website. You can go to healthwatchessex.org.uk. And in the meantime, you can keep up to date with everything that's going on via our social media channels at HWessex on Instagram and Twitter. And just search Health Watch Essex on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, we'll see you next time.